Greetings, programs, and welcome back to the Awesome Friday Podcast. I am your host. My name is Matthew, and with me, as always, is Simon. Give a quick hello, hello Simon. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Indeed. Uh, this is uh, our episode for the week of july the 30th we are slightly late to the party but we are going to be talking about barbenheimer this week no sense in trying to shoot to like obscure that fact but before we do um this is the point in the show where i now very professionally point out that if you are listening to this be aware that we do have a patreon at uh, patreon.com slash mc simpson and every week you do get a bonus episode as well this week we talked about canadian canadian comedy uh, what makes Star Trek great, and what could make Star Wars great. So if you want to hear two middle-aged white guys yelling about science fiction, <laughs> then uh, you could tune into our podcast instead of all the other ones. Um, yeah. So uh, the link for that will be in the show notes. Um, you can also find us on the socials. Just go to the show notes for that, because socials are in such flux today. And uh, last but not least, this episode is being produced during the ongoing uh, Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA strikes. And uh, without the labor of those two groups, none of the things that we are talking about would be possible. Um, None of the, no matter what the studios tell you, like neither of these uh, movies could have been produced by AI. Neither of these movies could be uh, acted by digital avatars and none of them like nothing none of this is possible without the writers and actors and we should pay them for their labor and you should support them uh because a high tide raises all ships uh anyway with all that out of the way how are you today simon i'm good i'm listening to you and nodding profusely at everything you're saying uh i'm okay i'm good it's it's been a busy week but i managed to actually do something i haven't done in years and go to this cinema and watched two movies back to back by myself, and it was a strange experience, but uh, a great one. And something actually, before we talk about the movies, have you found since the pandemic kind of separated us all off into into our own little apartments that you your kind of social comfort level has plummeted when you're around? people not even people you have to talk to but just like a lot of people because th- i really noticed this on tuesday there was a lot of people there and it, it wasn't like a crush but a lot of people and going to the cinema never used to have any kind of degree of anxiety or, or weirdness at all and it just felt uh i had to work a bit harder at just getting through it because i'm so used now i, I work from home too but uh i find that my comfort level in any kind of groups of people, any kind of social sitting is just like plummeted. Like, are you finding the same thing? Um, so I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say to the same degree as probably you do. I, I spent a greater part of my adult life working customer service. So I'm pretty good at like mm. putting on a mask for that kind of stuff. Um, I do find it harder very specifically to be in a movie, in a cinema, it would be in a movie theater. Mm. Um, and that has a lot to do with the things that my that I'm heightened to are things like if somebody coughs now, <laughs> and I'm like, oh uh, shit, maybe right. we should all have masks on still, you know. Um, uh, and also just the fact that I feel like like it's 
there's always been people who spoke at the movies and there's always been people who use, use their phones, their smartphones at the movies. Mm. And I do feel like it's worse now. Having been to the yes. movies four times in the past 10, 10, 12 days, um, I would say that it is, it is definitely, it's definitely more noticeable because I went so long without going to the movies, but it, it does mm-hmm. feel like it's worse. Uh, my second screening of Oppenheimer, because I've seen it twice now, um, there was a group of just like teenagers who just who just like were just on their phones like the whole time. <laughs> it's not the whole time, but like enough that it was like I don't I don't get why they were at the movie. It's basically what I'm trying to say because they weren't watching the movie. Um, on the other hand, like there was another there was another couple there who were talking as if it was their living room. And I was like, dude, can you guys stop talking? And they were like, oh, shit, yeah, we should stop talking. And then they stopped talking. So who, who knows? People are just weird. I don't. So no, to answer your question, I don't really feel the same level of dis- discomfort uh, or a worse level of discomfort when I'm in a crowd. But I definitely, it doesn't take much to set that off, though. Because like, yeah, if someone oh. like sneezes or coughs or open mouth chews near me, I get a little, probably a little bit more like, <laughs> than I did before. I have to keep telling myself that this is the new normal now. When I went to watch, in both of the movies, uh, Animation Impossible as well, um, people just openly taking photos and recording sections and texting people. And uh, it, it makes me angry to the point where it ruins the movie for me because I'm waiting for them to do it again. And I stop watching the film and I... I I think I just need to accept that we people don't watch the movie, watch films the way that we've been brought up to watch films. And the weird thing is that my kids are really noticing as well because I've been I've taught them about cinema like protocol, so they get really annoyed by people talking or whatever. They they went on a they went on a camp and they went to watch um, uh, Elemental, and uh, the, they both came back and said they couldn't believe how their whole group was talking. All the kids were talking all the way through, all the way Mm -hmm. through the film. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from the lead from the parents, but also when, when we watch films at home now, I have to like, it's a bit old fashioned. I, I I accept that. But if we're watching a film, someone starts talking, I'm like, no, you don't talk. You watch the movie because then if they're like, well, who's that? And what's that? I, 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 my response is watch the movie. Everything is in the movie. My kids do this thing now as well, that as soon as the movie starts, like, who's that? And what's that? And what's, what's this doing? And what's this? And I, I'm like, what, at what point do you expect to know everything at the beginning of the movie? I was like, yeah. watch the film, everything you're asking about, the director will show you. If you watch the film, you don't have to know everything at the beginning of the film. Watch the, uh, watch the movie. Yeah, that that gets to me as well. Um, when everyone's like, "Who's that? Who is that?" and you're like, "Well, we're thirty seconds into this film. Maybe you should watch and find out." <laughs> yeah. And for me, the other thing is that like, there's a like you wouldn't get people talking at if you were like at a play. And I think what the disconnect there is that if someone in the crowd is talking at a play, then that's disrespectful for the actors. But also, it's disrespectful to everyone around them, <laughs> like everyone mm. else in the audience. And I feel like we don't necessarily, as a society, respect our people around us the way we, I, we should. 
but it's built into technology now that you can do other stuff where you watch movies. So X- Xbox's big yeah, recent it, update is is but filled, it isn't. Is, so this but is it is, only... it is though. It is though. It's built like Xbox's most recent update was that you can put a film on and then minimize like a call it into a third of the screen and, and play a game on the other side of the screen. And, yeah, but here's my thing I, is that like I don't so I know that it physically does that or digitally, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that like and as a person who does occasionally when I'm at home check things on my phone while a movie is on, um I will 100% tell you there is there's no way you can divide your attention that way and experience either thing. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. I agree totally. So, like, if you if I'm at home and I, like, get a text or if I'm like, I wonder who that is, and I Google it because I can do that when I'm at home because I'm, I'm alone or if I'm just with my wife and she's whatever. Um, uh and I miss something, then I have missed that thing. You know, I'm sacrificing one, one, I'm gaining a piece of knowledge, but I'm sacrificing part of the experience. And that's, it's, it's wrong. I, I know when we're watching a film at home, my wife watches movies differently to me. She, she enjoys things as they are instead of me trying to absorb myself into them. I accept that. But she often, when we're watching movies, she'll get a phone out and she'll check something. I'm like, what, what are you doing? And I'll just, uh, but I'm too scared of her to say what you're doing, so I just look at her mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, see if that works. And um, I, part of it is I don't. I think when you watch a film, you should watch the film. I don't think you should. I never look at my phone when a film is on if I'm watching it for the first time. Like the film is there to be watched. It's, you, I, there's no talking. There's no looking down. There's no like phones. There's nothing. And uh, that's the way I watch films and uh i think i gotta keep telling myself that other people watch films differently because yeah otherwise wrong. it's just gonna be constant constant argument <laughs> yeah they watch them wrong this is yeah. what you're saying <laughs> um I mean, it's the same I thing like you can't you can't you can't like talk on the phone and read a book i don't know why you would be able to expect to be able to talk on the phone and watch a film, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, you can't. It's you a, can't divide it's your a visual attention. medium. Yeah, it's a visual medium, and you can only physically, visually focus on one thing at a time. So I, I don't, I don't get it as a, as a storytelling device. I don't get why you would not in, uh, involve yourself in that. But hey, yeah, maybe um, interconnecting us with powerful computers that fit into our pocket wasn't the best idea in the first place. Uh, I mean, we do need. I've just uh, midway through my uh, Blade Runner 2049 Blu-ray, which looks, uh, sorry, 4K, which looks amazing. But I uh, I am fascinated by their idea of this big blackout that happens between the first Blade Runner and this one, and everything just gets wiped. Like, yeah, wipe my mortgage. I'll lose, I'll lose like every bit of technology I have if you just wipe my <laughs> debts away. <laughs> sure thing. Send me back to the Dark Ages. No problem. Yeah, the problem with that is that the rich stay rich. You know, it wipes out yeah. the people without protection. Um, but yeah. it also, the people who have people who have the power retain the power in those situations yeah. always. Yeah. As evidenced by Blade Runner 2049. Uh, um, it does fit that very, very well. And, uh, and, every, and every every version of this of that, like even um, what was that Jessica Alba show called? Dark Angel which takes mm-hmm. place in a world after a big EMP. Like, the people with power have kept power, and the people without it have just lost everything they had. 
mm-hmm. not just their debts, but any agency as well. But anyway, okay, that's, okay. that's wow. grim science fiction for you. Uh, <laughs> we're in a real grim moment. mood today. Maybe it's because we're well, the movies we're looking at is pretty grim as well. So, I mean, maybe it's because we're living through a capitalist hellscape. But who knows? <laughs> I mean, both of those it's, things can be true. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the latest Blu-ray that your latest 4K that you've purchased, sir? So, um, I purchased Blade Runner 49 and the Alfred Hitchcock classic collection on 4K, which I haven't watched anything yet, but I've opened and it is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's a, every movie has its own little gatefold with, uh, pictures and information and it's got a 4K and a Blu-ray full of, um, special, uh, stuff that I haven't seen before. Um, so I'm... I'm really, really looking forward to watching uh, Rear Window and The Birds in 4K. And there's also two versions of Psycho, and I'm not sure I've seen uh, the... the, Do they call it a director's cut? There's a theatrical, then there's like an extended cut, and I haven't seen the extended, but it's meant to be be very, very good. So I'm looking forward to that as well. I don't know if I've seen a different cut of Psycho. Um, I should probably borrow that pack from you at some point. You should. Definitely should. Um... The reason I asked this, I mean, I, I bought some things lately. I bought the 4K of Brotherhood of the Wolf, which looks amazing in 4K. And, and Army the, of Darkness. The limited it. edition steelbook of uh, Army of Darkness, which also That's looks gorgeous. great in 4K. Yeah. But um, there's a recent article that said that uh, Disney is going oh, yeah. to stop distributing physical media in Australia. So I can only imagine that it's a matter of time that they stop doing it here, too. Uh, mm-hmm. especially given that they've already announced a steelbook of WandaVision with nothing in it, which doesn't, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think maybe it comes with a digital code, but it's basically an empty steelbook with some small posters in it. And I, wow. I don't, I don't, I don't like this future we're headed toward. Not Is like, it... so I don't, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with digital distribution. I think there's something inherently wrong with the way it's being handled though. Mm-hmm. And I think that we already have a, a major problem with, uh, I guess I'm going to call it quality bias in that the stuff that people love always will survive. Right. But that's only ever mm-hmm. one small subsection of the history of a thing. Right. So one of the things, and this comes back to TCM Turner classics being guided mm-hmm. by W Warner brothers in that, like that's so that, nice. that show is just going to become that channel is, almost certainly just going to become nonstop classics as in like, you know, mm-hmm. it'll be Casablanca and like all the Academy award winners. But one thing that TCM is actually really good about is choosing a theme and showing you showing a variety of films, a stuff that maybe you've never heard of mm-hmm. stuff. That's uh, forgotten stuff that was middling at the time, but still significant. Um, lots of different performances by lots of different actors that would otherwise just be lost to time because these companies don't don't give a shit to archive oh. their stuff. Yeah. And uh, I guess what I'm building towards here is that at some point, at, like at what point, at what point does piracy become moral, if only for its archival qualities? Well, I mean, based on my own personal opinion, it's when they started very very recently when Disney started pulling stuff when the companies start putting stuff because they don't want to pay the creators, that's when that's my moral stance lifted. Like that is the line when they took um, the serious bandit society off, when they took prodigy off, when they took willow off, uh, 
just so they don't have to pay people who made it. When they took that movie off that I really wanted to watch after seven weeks, the the crater. Like mm-hmm. my my moral stance on piracy has now become zero issue with it. Because if that's if I pay so much money to access this capital C content and I am not I do not accept their approach to money first art, not even second. Like these companies, for all their big words about their history in the business, they don't give two shits about preservation and they don't give two shits about the artistic process and what goes into making these things. And also someone said, we mentioned this before, but Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner made no money at all and was considered a total failure and only became a cult classic after its VCR VHS release. And now it's this like treasured, a piece of sci-fi uh it's not going to happen anymore because blade runner would have been deleted within seven weeks you never would have heard of it or seen it again and this is another issue i have with discover discoverability like the number of times i've been into a thrift store and seen an old vhs uh, vhs sometimes or a dvd of a movie i've not heard of i've kind of heard of its status and i know the people in it and what if that's good and i've taken it home and it's been this like ex- moment of of exploration and either loving or disliking this movie it doesn't matter once physical media is removed the, all of that aspect is gone for the future as well like the 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 history right. of filmmaking is only going to be what people decide it is and the things that only going to be on there are the things that make uh increasing money not even just interesting things just money so it's all going to just go yeah i mean like your casablancas will always be safe but your like mid-level '90s thrillers yeah. are already hard enough to find, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's definitely a thing. My personal opinion is honestly, if if Disney and Warner Brothers and whoever else has done it are able to take a tax write-off by disappearing content from their from their services, I think if we're gonna do that in order just to 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 save money from paying people and to take a tax write-off, then that work should be put into the public domain. Like, if we're really not going to pay them for it, then make it fully available. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, if you're going to, if you want to not have to pay, if you want to not have to pay McKenna Grace for starring in Crater on Disney Plus, so you want to write it off and never talk about it again, I think you should be able, I think maybe you should be able to do that as long as you put Crater into the public domain in a way that's easily accessible for everyone. Yeah. Like, no, no policing it for piracy. No, like, you don't have to necessarily, like, provide. Um, a streaming service for that kind of thing, although they could definitely afford that. Um, oh, of course. But like, just put it out there. Put it out there in a way that people can get to it. You know, like put put Batgirl out there in a way that people can get to it because people worked <laughs> on that. And this is the kind of stuff that the WGA and SAG after are striking over. It's part of it anyway. Mm. Um, and in particular, streaming residuals. I saw a great quote. I can't remember who it was, but it was retweeted by Matt Zoller's sites. I think a while ago that was you know. Yeah, it used to be that studio heads all wanted to be Jack Warner, and now they just want to be billionaires. Oh. And it's, uh, I think, quite illuminating because Jack Warner, every studio head ever, has been interested in making money, but at least Jack Warner understood that it was the entertainment that generated it, right? And that, anyway, we live in know, a capitalist hellscape, and I hate it. Someone like Nolan now, Nolan, Nolan's name got. Packed cinemas for a three-hour biopic with kids watching this movie 
that's booked through to August now is a big part of that is Nolan's name. And Nolan started out as a camera operator and then started making small, tiny budget things like uh, Memento, like Insomnia, which is a fantastic movie. And um, he his status has built as he's learned the trade and now he's this super director. But the the there had to be, a, at some point, the camera operator went to a producer and said, I've, I've got this idea for this low-budget movie. And the the risk of like i'm sure that happens a lot and i'm sure most of them don't make any money and don't even get a general release or maybe not even finished so there's a huge risk element to that and the students are so risk adverse now exactly as you say they're not interested in finding these up-and-comers they're not giving space to smaller projects to find the big stars there's got to be billion dollar openers all that's nothing and it's going to destroy the industry completely I mean, this is why one of the reasons why I still, I still enjoy. Like right now, I'm covering uh, the Fantasia Festival, 2023 Fantasia Festival, watching films for that. Um, and I don't know if you've started watching any yet either. But um, the one nice thing about this, the festival circuit is that I'm going to see stuff that I would otherwise never see, because mm. a lot of the stuff that I play at, at shows like Fantasia, some of it will make it out there, but some of it won't. And it's not all good, um, you know, uh, uh, but some of it is. And it's kind of nice to to watch stuff with zero hype and information and mm. just to see it totally. for the first time, totally fresh, and try and recognize the good things and the bad things. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just feel like uh, it's, it feels more and more, uh, for lack of a better word, broken and hopeless and it's mm-hmm. gonna take i hope that i hope that the writers and actors are on strike i have full confidence that they'll win but i i hope that they i hope they stay on strike for as long as they need to to get the, the deal that they need well i mean fed is the rock where we've talked quite negatively about the rock in past episodes but he's just donated a seven figure sum to keep the the strikers um going because the studios have openly said they're just gonna wait till they lose their houses they're gonna wait till they're hungry They've pushed their major movies to 2024. Everything's getting pushed because they don't want to pay people. Netflix is just advertising a chief of AI, and it's $900,000 a year yep. as a salary. And they don't care. They don't care about the art. They don't care about the momentum that Barbenheimer's created for actually going to the cinema. They're just pushing everything because they don't want to pay the artists. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing, too, because it does feel like, and I again, I don't, I don't have any inside baseball on this, but I have read that one of the biggest sort of players in the AMPTP, which is the group that negotiates on behalf of the studios, one of the one of the biggest players is Netflix. And I find that very interesting because Netflix doesn't give a shit about cinemas. So they're able, they're more able to be like, well, we'll just push all our stuff to next year because they don't they don't rely on, they don't have to rely on uh the cinema experience like you know the warner brothers and disney's and universals of the world still mm. do and i feel like letting netflix lead the way is detrimental mm. in that way right yeah. like i think they all want to be reed hastings they don't you know when they all should still be trying to be jack warner and i i hate it the I hate streaming it the, the the streaming structure is what's killing the industry at the moment because they don't they want it quickly they want it out there they want capital c content 
like a movie a week at one point. Remember the last year where they advertised there was a movie a week? They just want it out there. And because the algorithm, it just gets buried, which I know you want to talk about a film that got buried this week. And these films would usually be making waves in the cinema, on cinema screens, when there used to be more than three things uh, in in the eight screens on the cinema and the Cineplex downtown, there's three movies over what twelve screens, and they used to be a whole bunch of different films on all the different screens, and you could actually go and watch them even if it was for a couple of weeks. And it's uh, the 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 streaming industry has stopped that and is openly trying to stop that, so uh, they can have a, a nicer Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing. And uh, like I say, my sincere hope is that the uh, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA stick it out and win. I think they will eventually win because, like, they're not wrong. You can't make this stuff without them. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like, I'm sure that all these studios have stuff in the pipeline, but they are going to need new stuff at some point. And I think the writers and the actors do have the resolve to, to carry this through this time. And I applaud them for doing so. Best case scenario, one of the streamers goes, fine, fuck you, we're going to make an AI show or reality show, but AI scripted and non, non-union functional actors and digital avatars and animation. And uh, after a year, it turns out all their content is so bad that their shares tank or they actually have to close. And and they go back and re- uh, hire the creators who are actually making human s- stories. And, well, the interesting... Uh, that bubble burst, basically. The interesting thing about this is, were you aware that A24, yes. their their productions are continuing? And you know how they're continuing? Because they, they received, said yes. They, received a, they just got a waiver from the unions uh, saying, you know what? We agree to every single one of your stipulations. And if A24, which is at best like a mid-level player in the studio system, well, that's been, um, yeah. and that's being pretty generous, if they can that's afford to do it, generous. If they can afford to do it, then literally all of them can. Because yeah, yeah. like I think make great films as well. And like <clears throat> you know, in every single one of these cases, if the if the CEO were to give up less than one percent of their salary, they would meet the demands for like decades. So it's <sighs> a whole know. thing. <clears throat> it's, uh, they don't want to blink. They've got the money to sit it out. They can push everything. They don't care. They don't care. They, they don't. They are actively waiting for these writers and actors to get so hungry they have to come back to work. Yeah, they're also actively engaging in some strike busting. I can't remember if we spoke yeah. about it last week, but the trees, you know, the trees, and the the construction barriers and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're going to start to see. This is another good good moment. We're sort of going a little longer on this than I would like, but um, you're going to start to see lots of articles from places like Deadline and the Hollywood Reporter and Variety. They start talking about like, you know, this production being pushed back or stopped because of the strike. And I would just like to remind everyone that it's not because of the strike. It's because the studios are refusing to negotiate. Mm-hmm. It's not like all there's a very big implication in a lot of these articles that it is somehow the writers and actors fault. But the AMPTP mm-hmm. is not negotiating with them. Mm-hmm. And they refuse to negotiate. They're not even sitting at the table. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're not negotiating. Yeah. And they could afford to. They could afford to just say yes to everything and they would make like a minute amount less money. But the one thing to what I'm trying to get to here is that um, it it always seems like there's all these big publications that that cover Hollywood. But Deadline, 
the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Rolling Stone, um, and a few more, but a lot of those like big production, big publications that cover Hollywood are actually all the same company. And they have a, and they have a very, they're a big conglomerate and they have a very studio bias, bias toward the studio. So you're going to start to see lots of articles that are blaming the actors and writers for these problems, but they yeah, are 100% caused by the studios. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, Union Strong, Union Forever. And let's move on to the main part of the show. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about, you know, there's no sense in trying to hide it. Last week was one of the biggest um, movie weekends in recent memory. Uh, with the release of two amazing films, Barbie and Oppenheimer. And we are going to talk about both of them this week. So, uh, Simon, why don't you... Actually, you saw, you've seen them both. Have you seen either one of them twice yet? No? No, I've seen one of them, the, the second one, uh, for the second time on Tuesday. So I've seen them right. both once. So I've seen Oppenheimer twice now. So um, for those of you okay. unaware, J. Robert Oppenheimer was the architect of the... Manhattan Project that created the first atomic bomb. And this movie, Oppenheimer, is the story of his life uh, as adapted from the um, biography book American Prometheus, which was written by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Uh, the film is directed by Chris Britton and directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Killian Murphy and a murderer's row of talented people in every other role. And it retells the life of Oppenheimer in three distinct timelines, which I don't think is a spoiler because it's a Nolan film and there's always three timelines. Um, one is from his early days at university up until the, the Trinity test. That is the first nuclear test that they conducted a uh, very historic moment. Uh, the second timeline is a later security clearance hearing Um in the mid fifties. And then the third one is a congressional confirmation hearing centered around Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is, uh, Leslie, uh, not Leslie Crowe's, um, Louis Strauss, a uh, Strauss, mm -hmm. who was a member of the atomic energy commission and later was nominated for uh, secretary of commerce. Um, I, I mean, it's hard not to spoil this movie because it's all historical and it all happened. Uh, uh, and this film, as far as I can tell, and I haven't done any like deep research on this, but as far as I can tell, hewns to the book pretty closely. Mm -hmm. So, um, basically, each of these three timelines, uh, they weave in and out of one another, they inform one another, they illuminate one another. Uh, and I think that... This, <laughs> I mean, the basic plot, again, is J. Robert Oppenheimer built the bomb. And then was punished for it. Um, um, I don't really know how much more of the plot I want to say about this, but what I will say is that I think that if you are a fan of Christopher Nolan, you're going to be very happy. Uh, if you're a fan of Christopher Nolan, I kind of expect you would have already have seen this by the time you're hearing us talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, for better or for worse, uh, very much Christopher Nolan film. There's multiple timelines, there's many great performances it looks amazing and the story is incredibly well told and some of the dialogue is really clunky um <laughs> so it it has all of all of christopher nolan's hallmarks should we say um 
and I don't want to tell you anything about it. I think it's a historical event. I think you can go read about it if you really want to. I've heard that the book is good. I haven't read it. It is on my list. Um, but he was an interesting person, debatably a monster. Um, and it, uh, if nothing else, I fully expect this film to be nominated for literally every award under the sun. Mm-hmm. Whenever we get awards shows again. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm a bit rambly because I'm trying to like dance around a few things here. But what did you think of it, Simon? You've seen it. I've seen it twice. You've seen it once. What was your first impression? So I think, well, first of all, it's a tour de force, but as a technical achievement, it's Nolan absolutely uh, firing on every cylinder he has. And also um, there's some very clear responses to lots of people say he doesn't have much like emotion in his movies or sex, sexual content in his movies in terms of, in terms of sexual connection. And all of these things are very much answered in this film. It's a very emotional film. It's a race. It, some elements are very, very sexual. The filmmaking elements are used uh, to cross over, not just the timelines, but the, the memories people have and how they are kind of overlaid on the reality of what's happening in front of them. Um, it's a movie you definitely have to watch. And if you like, uh, my wife really dislikes films that mess around with her own chronology where you have to kind of work out which part of the story is happening when I personally think that the movie, uh, is very, very good at establishing when each part of the story happens, even when it jumps around within that, those, uh, three or four chronologies. Um, yeah, that, I would say that, that this is... That, maybe maybe his most successful in that particular regard i don't so i think that um you know obviously films like inception and dunkirk which have like a very focused moment where they come together and it's three disparate Mm -hmm. timelines all i think i would i would actually maybe go so far as to say that dunkirk has a a better more positive catharsis if we're gonna stick to the nolan metaphors here um Um, in terms of bringing the timelines together the way the timelines converge in Dunkirk, I feel like is a better release, but I think that might be because it happens at the climax that like when that happens in this movie, there's still like 45 minutes to an hour to go. Yes. Right. I, I think, um, I think I'd say the open hype is more successful in, in, in balancing its split chronology than Dunkirk is. I love Dunkirk. I think it's a great movie. Um, but yeah, I, 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 what I, think I, what it, I was, what I was going to say is that, Done, uh, that Oppenheimer manages to keep all of those things clear, even when at one or two points there's a flashback within one of those mm. timelines, and mm-hmm. it's always clear as to what exactly is happening. Yeah. Sorry, you saying Dunkirk or Oppenheimer? Uh, an Oppenheimer. Okay. Uh, like there's a, there's a couple of moments in Oppenheimer where like you're in a timeline, and then there's a flashback within that timeline, but you can always tell which timeline you're in, and I think mm-hmm. that that's actually fairly incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it is incredible. And again, this is a very assured movie made by a, a very assured director. There was, there was no stumbling through any part of this. It's beautifully shot and designed. This is a $100 million movie that looks far better than uh, any of the the films we've watched recently that, that cost almost three times that much. It's just brilliantly designed and shot and edited. I find it very, very interesting that there's all, almost no moments of silence through this movie. And that's a very 
underlined almost because silence is used as a weapon in this film mm. incredibly effectively. But if you listen to the score, even during soft dialogue moments, the score does not let up. And I think that's a really good idea because this is a three hour Talking Heads movie. It's a three hour biopic. Um, even though we know what it's building towards, we know it's building towards the Trinity test. So there is an expectation of that. But I think one of the ways it's successful and uh, is drawing in such a young audience, like my cinema was completely filled with 20-somethings who watched the damn movie all the way through, who were not even shuffling in their seats, which was amazing to me. But that that score uh, like links everything together. There's no... It's almost like the score is ticking down to the Trinity test itself. Like it, it's a constant move forward, even when you're jumping timelines. And uh, I, you mentioned the clunky dialogue. I didn't f- feel it was too clunky for me. It's all very, very staged. Like Nolan's dialogue is always very, it's not how real people talk. I think a great example of that is when the protagonist meets uh, Michael Caine and Tenet uh, in the and they have the most ridiculously staged conversation. That's a very good example of how Nolan, Nolan treats dialogue. And, and Oppenheimer has that as well. Oh, well hang, on, hang, on, hang, on, hang on, sorry. We just have to go back for a moment to where yeah. you pronounced Nolan Nolan. Um, Nolan? I feel Nolan. Like, I feel like maybe we should refer to him as Christopher Nolan. Like we were friends on Star Trek saying human. <laughs> maybe, Christopher, maybe, Christopher um, Nolan. Maybe it's my Irish roots coming out. Christopher Nolan. Oh, he's a good boy. Yeah, I met him once. Um, <laughs> but the um, he's uh, the dialogue is very staged. But it it works in this for me. And I think the reason it works is that the cast are just... You could look around this entire cast and go, everyone is getting an Oscar here. But the standout for me... Uh, like, Killian Murphy's a great actor. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. Is, is also great. But... Uh, the standout for me was Emily Blunt, who I thought was absolutely phenomenal in this film in a way we've never seen her act this way before. In, and uh, I would love for her to get an Oscar for this film because she is she it's she's really the emotional core of this film, like trying to uh, deal with Oppenheimer, who can be quite cold and standoffish in the way he deals with everything. Um and I thought she was wonderful. And then, of course, there is that moment where uh, Christopher Nolan um, decides to uh, replicate the Trinity test uh, without CG and instead blows up an absolute fuckton of TNT to get the right flame effect. And it's incredibly effective. And, and yeah, it, tons of gas uh, and like, I, apparently like uh, magnesium flares and a number of other things. Right. I don't want to spot, I don't actually want to talk about it because the effect of it. Is incredible, but the the way it's done was the opposite to what I was expecting to happen, and it's incredibly effective, uh, gut wrenchingly so. And the what I'm also um, really impressed with is how then, like we all know from history that the Trinity test led to uh, terrible events what the U.S. decided to do with that technology in Japan. And the way it deals with that was absolutely devastating and reflected his regret really, really well. Again, using very specific film techniques that you couldn't do in any other media. And uh, it's gut-wrenching. 
and exhausting and incredible as a technical masterpiece. It's an incredible movie. Is it my favourite Nolan? It's not. Tenet's my favourite Nolan. Why am I saying Nolan? Nolan! Tenet is my favourite Christopher Nolan movie. Um, but this is... Uh, this is, like, a film that you get, like, once or twice a decade that is the kind of going back to these David Lean epics, like this huge IMAX screen-filling cinematography deep, but also directed and edited and, and to to the absolute height of like perfection. It's go it's a cinema movie. For the love of God, go and pay the money and go and watch this in in, in IMAX if you can get in because it's booked out. So I would say yes to all of that. Um for me it's a cinema movie and having now seen it two times, because I got into the 70 millimeter not IMAX but 70 millimeter screening here in Vancouver um, preview screening. And then I also took my wife to see it in a, in a big AVX theater downtown. Um, it will definitely, it will definitely benefit from multiple viewings of this film as well. Um, there, because it is so dense, there is a, there is no moment in this film. Well, sorry, there is one moment where it lets up for a minute. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. it is it is otherwise so densely packed. So, like the the thing you're talking about, how it's you know it it's almost feels like a countdown. It it feels um, relentless in its momentum because it, there's just so much material. Like I couldn't. There's not that many other films, at least recently, where I would say that a three hour runtime feels maybe even overstuffed. Because they just there was stuff they just couldn't leave out. Like this film could honestly be longer and still be great. Um, and I would say that the most successful stretch of that is there's a, a specific moment that I don't I don't necessarily want to point out exactly because I don't want to color anyone's view. But there's a from a specific moment once they're at Los Alamos to the Trinity test is I think one of the most successful stretches of filmmaking I've seen certainly this year. Um, in oh. terms of like that countdown y feel, that that relentless pacing building towards the thing that we all know they're going to do, that we're going to see, um, I think is just spectacular. Uh, oh. And there's a number of visual cues on screen that let you know that we're getting closer and closer, and the music is slowly and surely building. And once it once the Trinity test happens, there's I, I don't want to talk about it either because the way it's done is so magnificent, but it, it literally made me jump out of my chair the first time I saw it mm-hmm. um, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. I think when I mentioned that the dialogue can be a little bit clunky. So this film is also interesting in that there's three timelines, but there's two color palettes. One is full color and the other is black and white. And it is clear if you didn't know ahead of time, it would also just be clear that the color sections of this film are very clearly meant to be more subjective that they are meant to be robert oppenheimer's like remembrance of what's happening um like they're very focused on oppenheimer they're very much they're all from his point of view they're all very much meant to be this is how he experienced it and the sections that are in black and white are very much feel like a more objective view of things that are happening oh. of the, we, you know, we, 
we pulled this together from multiple sources. We're trying to recreate this a little more accurately. Um, and I think that that, uh, what's the right word? Dichotomy? That that balance is also super interesting. Um, <clears throat> so when I say the dialogue can be a little clunky, the other part of that is that I think a lot of it is more clunky in, in the sections where it's his remembrance, and especially the one where that's leading up to the Trinity test, where people are having to exposit things that are, there's just not really any way to make that sound natural, right? Some of it, some of it works. Uh, some of it really doesn't. And there's definitely a few moments where it's like, and now I shall point out the thing that is happening, you know, like, um, but then the, the other two timelines where it is, they're basically both just hearings like courtroom dramas, almost oh. the dialogue is like on fire the whole time. Oh. Oh. And for me, I think Emily, I think, so first off, I, for me, the standout in this film was Robert Downey Jr. Um, because he gets a chance to capital A act like we haven't seen him do since before oh. the MCU. Like he hasn't put in a performance this good since Zodiac and Zodiac was 2007. Uh-huh. And he is, he manages to, to skirt this line of being completely transformed, but still recognizably Robert Downey Jr. Like he does that Robert Downey held, head tilt thing. He does a couple oh. of times. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful to watch him work. And I don't want to spoil it if you've never read history, but there's a moment where his character takes a turn and he just runs away with it in a way that I enjoyed every single moment of. He gets a big, meaty monologue at the end as well that will definitely be part of his Oscar clip and his Golden Globe clip and every other clip oh. that he's going to have this year. And it might be a case of more acting versus best acting, but uh, at least when it comes to the comparison with Emily Blunt. But uh, it really, really, really worked for me. And I'm, I was very happy to see him, again, like capital A acting again. Not, not to say that like he didn't have to act in the MCU, but to really fully become someone in a way that I don't feel like he necessarily had to to be Tony Stark. Do you know what I'm trying oh. to say? Yeah, I, but, but, I do. But, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to point. I didn't see. I didn't know anything about the character, and I didn't see the his his uh, change in motivation. So I didn't see it coming. And I was thinking afterwards how well he did. Like, there's tons of Robert Downey Jr. affectations in his performance, so you can see it's him. But he he um he he gets the balance between what that character does and actually ties together quite cleverly everything that's happened because fundamentally the story is Oppenheimer recounting how he got to where he is in one of the hearings so you're kind of seeing his explanation of how he got to where he is but then we kind of learn that Rob Downey Jr.'s character is, is pretty fundamental to it even like the camera pulls back another layer and his true character comes out of it and I was thinking afterwards how well balanced actually he got those two halves and how I believed both those halves and I think you mentioned yesterday that in another timeline it would have been a Kevin Spacey part but I, mean, I, think yeah, I, said, Kevin... I said that to you just the other day that like I don't... in an alternate yeah. timeline this is definitely Kevin Spacey and he's definitely right. up for his third Oscar for it but I don't think Kevin Spacey would have got that balance as well because he's fun to... the thing about Kevin Spacey is that he's he's fundamentally quite 
a creepy he has a creep to his performance in everything he does that's why he was always cast as as the manipulator if you like and i think rdj did a really good job of bringing me along for the ride and and showing the two sides really successfully it was really good yeah i think if it was if it had been kevin spacey who you know fuck that guy but if it had been him the problem would be he would have just been uh he would have just been frank again he would have just been his character from house of cards again uh which is fine that's who that's who he plays um but robert downey jr was able to bring some a different energy which i really liked i feel like i feel like the the turn was a little more of a surprise as a result yes exactly but but this is all ignoring the fact that killian murphy is probably finally going to be nominated for every acting award under the sun (laughs) Um, it's. Uh, I'm glad he was so good in this because I he's he's been acting a long time, um, and he always seems to have the the support or he's a lead in in more minor things. And I I uh, he totally nailed this that this massive performance, this massive movie as a leading man that he is so confident in it in his portrayal of Oppenheimer throughout many eras of Oppenheimer's life. Um, it, the whole film is going to hinge on his performance. And for me, he absolutely nailed it. Like every element of it and showed us like all the different things he goes through as well. He didn't overplay anything. Uh, I mean, if anything, so, yeah. his performance is incredibly understated, yeah. um, which I think is wonderful. I think it's part of the reason it works is that this man is clearly so... And I don't know how accurate it is historically, but in the film, the character is so guarded. Uh, and so, like you said, standoffish is a good word for it. Um, mm-hmm. That oftentimes the sort of like his internal, his internal drama is often conveyed only through the way, like the look in his eyes. And there are a number of scenes in this movie where you can tell exactly how he's feeling, even though he's totally stone-faced. And I think that's a mm-hmm. real, a real achievement. Definitely just to go back to my previous one, it's definitely a case of sort of best acting versus most acting. <laughs> and right. I feel like hopefully everyone in the world recognizes that. In particular, the very last shot of this film is just a close-up on his face. And it is the most haunting expression you can imagine. Like, not mm-hmm. scary, not sad, not upset. But, like, this is if people say, here's how you look haunted then this is the photo yeah. they will show. And it is so much to do with this, the, what is happening behind his eyes. And it is an incredible performance. And I think, I mean, part of that is that he's a great actor. He's, you know, he's been the lead on Peaky Blinders for years now. Um, mm. But in film, you're right, he often has a supporting role. I think it might also come from the fact that this is his, I think, sixth collaboration with Christopher Nolan. So there's a real... Right a real trust between director and performer there as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that can really bring out the great inner performer as well. You know, see also, you know, Scorsese and De Niro or, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, Gerwig and Ronan or, you know, the ones where they they clearly work together and understand one another. There's a yeah. real, um, it, it brings trust. out something else. Real trust brings out yeah. performances. And then some... and we haven't even talked about the fact that Florence Pugh is in this movie for like 25 minutes and she owns yeah. every single second of it. And Alden yeah. Ehrenreich is in this movie. who And he has... Alden Ehrenreich is really so good in this movie. 
and he yeah. has to spend all of his time holding a holding his own against Robert Downey Jr. giving the performance of a lifetime, and he yeah. also owns every second of it. And yeah. literally, literally every character in this movie is played by somebody famous. Um, oh. Like Josh Hartnett is in this. Uh, Florence Pugh is in Josh this. Yeah. Josh Hartnett is so good in this movie. I hope this is him. His comeback. He is brilliant in this film. Yeah, him, um, between this and his episode of Black Mirror this year, I hope I hope that we get a big Hartnett assance. Uh, side note about Hartnett: <laughs> my sister met him uh, randomly in the town I grew up in because he's married to a famous actor from the area. His wife is from the area, and uh, she recognized him and basically screamed, "You're Josh Hartnett!" As, as is the kind of thing my sister would do. And apparently, he was lovely, absolutely lovely. So that's nice too. So I, I would like I would love for him to have a massive comeback because apparently he's a very nice man. Uh, I would believe that. He seems like he might be a sweetheart in real life. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know he was married to Tamsin Edgerton. That's interesting. Um, yeah. There's also, I think, it's really, really interesting that like, I mean, we could just talk about the cast for hours. Um, but everyone in it is weirdly perfect. Like Jack Quaid is in this weirdly perfect um <laughs> it's great david david krumholtz is in this as uh uh what's his name isidore robbie and he is so good as the sort of like slightly older jewish fatherish figure even though they're contemporaries as this guy who just shows up and is like eat your oranges you know like it's he's so good <laughs> in the role um Kenneth Branagh's good. Uh, Kenneth... Branagh and Nolan are clearly like magic together. They because yeah, he, he's getting Nolan gets Branagh's best performances. Like three moment. three scenes, and they're some of the most memorable in the movie. And 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 like Benny Safdie, who like you probably know from being an amazing director, is in this, and he's fucking perfect as Edward Teller. I don't know, man. I could just I could just go to the list and be like, yeah, he's perfect. Yeah, he's I think. And the the core the core of all this, and I want to go back to Florence Pugh as well. She she lays herself. I'm not talking like figuratively and literally. She lays herself bare on, and in IMAX, it's quite the thing to behold. And she, there is so much trust between all the actors and what Nolan has asked them to do. And I think that's a huge testament to the kind of set he's created, the kind of person he is, because he's he's got repeated people that come back and work for him time and time again. And he's got the trust of the series of actors really put themselves on the line for him. And there was no way he would get these performances and get Florence Pugh to do what she did without absolute trust in his vision. And so all this, all these performances, all the cinematography, all the editing is down to him. And you want to talk about like uh, the, the, the kind of directors that had this vision like these old-fashioned, like Hitchcockian, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not Voyeur. Help me out, Matt. This, um, oh, when one person's got a vision, like, people talk about it with Tarantino as well. Oh, you're talking about auteur theory. Auteur, oh, thank you, auteur theory. And and auteur theory is largely bullshit because it takes a, a village. But this this is absolute evidence of Nolan, who has been in the he has been the cameraman. He's been the person like lining up the shots. Like he knows about all parts of this process and he clearly learns from the people around him as well, but he's clearly the person that people trust in and learn from. So it's, it's a great example of all of these things coming together for three hours of a technical masterpiece. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, he's also clearly the kind of guy, because again, if you look at the cast list of this movie is insane. He's also the kind of guy who can get, you know, a long-standing character actor like James Remar to show up for one scene and then give uh-huh. just an amazing pitch-perfect performance as uh, it was Secretary of War, because we oh. didn't have um, <clears throat> uh, Henry Stimson. When they're just discussing, and that he's only in it one scene, they're just discussing where they're going to drop the bomb. And he's perfect yeah. in that one scene. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah, say perfect is. over and over. Everyone in this, oh, everyone God, in this is giving the performance... Everyone in this is giving the performance of a lifetime. It's just a matter of how long they're on screen for. It's an incredible feat. And there's there's one character, and I don't want to spoil it because I don't really want to... We've already talked about one problematic person. But there's one person in this movie who's a problematic person in real life. And the use of them as the character they play makes that character more, more upsetting, more despisable on screen. And I think it's actually a really smart... Uh, use of that actor is he think... is he problematic i don't know anything about him off screen uh, we'll talk about this off air because we can't really spoil who it is but yeah uh i didn't know but yeah it's a horrible part uh, well played horrible part so yeah that will ties in yeah um i there's a couple of things i want to mention before we move on from oppenheimer and it goes back to you talking about that that great character actor whose name I forget. Who, when they talk about where they're dropping the bomb, and there's a moment in that there's a throwaway line in that scene when they're choosing where to drop the bomb and which places get removed and why. That yeah. is the most gut wrenchingly horrific thing I have heard in years in a script, and the fact it's delivered with a tiny chuckle is like the most emotional I felt in this movie because it is a perfect takedown of this military industrial complex that this whole movie is criticizing. And there's been so much critical voices about Nolan making a pro-US, pro-atomic bomb movie that I want you to ignore all of that because these people have either not seen this movie or are incapable of understanding the clear message of this movie, which is anti-atomic bomb, anti-war, anti-death by like huge uh, weapons of mass destruction. There's not any gray area in how this movie decides to talk about these things. So um, please ignore this huge number of people who who for some reason are being critical of Nolan making a pro-war movie because it absolutely I mean, is not. And it's not even a, it's not even an interpretation of it. It's clearly not. Yeah. I've seen two things about it. One, some people accusing it of being like pro-bomb, pro-war. And yeah, anyone who thinks that I, I yeah, didn't watch or didn't understand the movie. You genuinely the, don't know how to watch <clears throat> movies if that's what you think. And the, uh, the other thing I've seen is that like, there's no Japanese people in the movie, but also like, this movie is very singularly about J. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah. And you don't... There's no reason, that's like, there's, there's no reason for them to show the bomb actually being dropped. And I would argue it's probably mm-hmm. even more more impactful the way it's it mm-hmm. happens in the film. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and maybe, just maybe, you could take this as an opportunity to engage with other media on the matter. Because a bomb blowing up a city is actually a pretty relevant thing in Japanese cinema. It happens all the goddamn time. And mm-hmm. even Godzilla is about the bomb. Like there's it's it's a 
very relevant cultural touchstone in Japanese culture, Japanese cinema and television in particular. And Mm -hmm. there's lots and lots and lots of movies about this from their point of view. And I think this is a great opportunity for lots of people to watch more of those films, basically. Yes, Um, absolutely. Because there's there's a literal ton of them out there. It doesn't really... Like, this movie doesn't need to show the death of 200,000 people for it to be effective or for it to be relevant, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and it's more uh, shocking because it does come from his point of view where he's left out of the process and it dawns on him what he has done. Like, it's so much more effective. Yeah. Uh, how many yeah. stars? We've talked. We're at an hour already. We haven't even started the second movie. How many stars for you? Oh, it's five. It's definitely five. Yes. I, I, I five. initially thought it might only be four, and then four or five days later, when I realized I was still thinking about it, I was like, no, this is definitely a five-star movie. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, same boat completely. This is a technical masterpiece, and uh, it's go see it on the biggest screen you can. Yeah. Uh, yes. All of that is true. Um, so should we move on to? Yes the second film in our Barbenheimer weekend, uh, which is, which is Barbie, uh, which is, you know, if you told me that there were two films coming out on the same day and, you know, one of them was about the creation of one of the most significant cultural inventions of the 20th century, uh, made by one of our best working directors and starring a murderer's role of talent, um, then you would be right to think it was Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Simon, why don't you give us uh, the quick rundown? Because you've seen it more recently than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you give us the quick rundown on the Greta Gerwig's Barbie? Greta Gerwig and so, Noah Baumbach, co-writer uh, Barbie. Barbie lives in Barbie land with all the other Barbies. Every woman is a Barbie and every man is a Ken. And all the different Barbies are different cultural representations of Barbie. So Margot Robbie is stereotypical Barbie. She's the person you think of when someone says think of a Barbie. But there's many, many, many other Barbies. Uh, uh, All different shades and colors and, and sizes and ethnicities. It's wonderful. And they all live in this perfectly uh, realized Barbie world that looks like a playset. They all live in, in their playsets and they, they party and the Kens go to the beach and some of them have the job that is beach. And um, <laughs> out, of, <laughs> out of nowhere, uh, Margot Robbie's Barbie uh, starts having really strange thoughts. Like in the middle of a beautiful party choreographed dance, she'll ask, has anyone thought about death? And um, this is not a world where ever anyone thinks about these deep thoughts at all. And she's thoroughly confused why her body is doing different things. She's thinking about different things. Uh, and she goes to get the advice of uh, Weird Barbie, who tells her very openly there's a the person in the real world that you're playing with is having these thoughts that's influencing you. So your quest is to go and find that person into the real world and... Um, as, and make them happy again because that's the Barbie's job is to make girls happy and empower women through the world. So it's kind of it. it, it de- there's definitely a Lego Movie parallel here, but in in this movie they're very open about there being a portal. There's a real world. There's their world. The people play with them and it represents them and so on. So she goes off into the real world, and so you've got this um, odd representation of a classic Barbie character in modern society. And it's a bit 
Austin Powers, when the 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 culture icon from one era moves into the other era and is treated as a joke unexpectedly. So, um, and she takes um, Ken with her for the ride, and basically it's a story about learning who uh, who needs her, and also learning about um, what she can do for the world. But also, this is very much a Ken story. This isn't just a Barbie story, and so that does mean you get glorious amounts of Ryan Gosling being the most perfect human being on the planet and learning about the patriarchy and what he can do to take back that back to Barbie land. So maybe it's not just the Barbies in charge. And it is wonderful. This film is wonderful. It is so much better than it has any right to be. It is far deeper than it has any right to be. I have no idea how Greta Gerwig got Mattel to sign off on the script, on any lines of the script, uh, including the final line. Um, but she did. Mattel clearly trust her. And holy shit, like, she knocked it out of the park. And um, the, I sat... There was a section of this movie that I watched open-mouthed for maybe five minutes, uh, which <laughs> I haven't done since Fury Road. And take that as you will. But... I loved the hell out of this film. And I don't really want to say much more because the joy is, uh, the jokes are funny and the joy is experiencing like as the story unfolds. And yeah, it's, it's a little pacey in the middle. It drops in the middle for sure. But the last act is incredible. So I don't care. That's my I, don't even think it, I don't even think that it like drops that much in the middle, to be totally honest. It definitely, you know, it goes through the second act exposition, but I don't think it's a... Uh... Mm-hmm. I don't think it's unnecessary or unneeded. It's um, yeah, and I think the the brilliance in this is that you know, so it is. It's a Barbie movie, but it's also very much a Ken movie. You're not wrong, and their storylines play out um, in parallel as opposites. And I really loved that structure. And there's just a ton of things to say about you know our world, and I don't want to spoil any of it. But this film really seems to understand what you know what what it's actually like in the world basically and mm-hmm. it seems to understand i think what <clears throat> i think one of the things it really gets is not just how women are treated but how men feel they are treated i don't know how to say this without getting really spoilery about ken's storyline but it's i think it's really on the nose about about the sort of self image of certain kinds of men and I really love it for that. Um, I, no, go ahead. Uh, uh, no, I just want to say that I loved how it suggested that the answer to the patriarchy is not the matriarchy and vice versa. These are not solutions that the balance is actually somewhere in the middle as it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, that's I, the thing, I really right? loved how, how it dealt with that. Like, I don't want to... It's hard to talk about without spoiling, but the idea that each of them... You know, Barbie goes to the real world and discovers that women have no value, and Ken leaves, goes to the real world and, discover, and discovers that men have all the value, whereas he's not used to having any at all. And the the you know the opposites being the solution, not being the solution, I think is super smart. I also think there's a really interesting parallel in in, in the real world section of this movie where they go and meet, you know, the executives of Mattel, all of whom are unnamed, <laughs> and there's a real parallel between the corporate boardroom being the sort of like male Barbie land as they're all, because the thing about Barbie is they're not just like, 
they're not just representative of different Barbies. They're each Barbie in Barbie land is representative of a different idea of Barbie. And in the same way, each of the executives in the Mattel office is an idea of like a CEO and a CFO. And I found it super interesting uh, and they're all kind of dumb and I loved it. And um, I mean, yeah, this movie's also just gorgeous to look at. It actually costs more than Oppenheimer, which I find super interesting. <laughs> I kind of wonder if it's maybe just the talent involved or people maybe well, those sets as well though. But the sets as well, like the Barbie Land sets are immaculate and perfect. Yeah, and, it's incredible. And all the real world sections are great. And it all it all just looks so bright and pink and wonderful. And it's another case of like everyone they got to play every character fully understood the assignment and what they were going for. Mm. And it's the kind of movie where like it doesn't have quite the depth that say Oppenheimer did, but it also knows well enough to have real Perlman come out in the third act and deliver just an absolutely like heartwarming monologue yeah. about what it means to be a Barbie and or a woman. And also America Ferrera is <clears throat> sensational in this. I haven't really seen her in anything. And she, aside from one great monologue she has, she's, uh, she's playing the mother of this problematic daughter. And I think that as, um, I don't know, I think you can spot scripts by people who have had lots of interaction with kids of that age because it felt really, really real. Like the body language keys between them, the way they spoke to each other, the way they interacted when things started coming together didn't feel patronizing at all. It felt really, really real. And I thought America Forever was fantastic. Uh, yeah, and by the same token, um, I thought Ariana Greenblatt, who mm -hmm. we've seen a couple of times. In fact, this year she was in 65. We saw that earlier. Oh, um, so was her mum. So it was Alexander Ship. Alexander Ship, who was another Barbie, was her mum in 65. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And she, yeah, she's a real up-and-comer young actress, and I really hope she does. Mm. I hope this propels her into greater heights, because she's really good in this, too, as the sort of, you know, the uh, mil militant feminist young woman who softens up just enough. But, like, mm -hmm. just enough to be... to get her point across, you know, not mm -hmm. to stop, stop being off-putting, but still really... Yeah. It's a really fine balance, and I feel like it's a real testament to the script that she could have gone, it could have gone mm -hmm. fully the other way. And mm -hmm. I keep hearing about how like this movie was going to originally be made ten years ago with Amy Schumer and um, as Barbie, and as uh, Diablo Cody as the writer and director. And I can't help but think what a better movie this is. I don't yeah. think this movie could have been made the way it's been made now. Um, but I feel like 10 years ago, it definitely would have been like, oh, yeah, Barbie's not thin. Ha ha. This is our version of feminism. We weren't really allowed to, you know, everything had to be the sort of anti still 10 years ago, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like it couldn't be, mm -hmm. you couldn't be tall, thin, beautiful Barbie and have an existential crisis mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 10 years ago, whereas today you can. And I feel like it's a better movie for that. If that's. We, you know, we haven't talked about. Yeah, we haven't talked about Margot Robbie, and uh, I think she's got a really difficult task in this movie to both be the stereotypical Barbie whilst not dumbing it down, whilst going through the journey she goes through in the third act as well. And I, I she's just lovely. She gives such a lovely performance in this film. It's such an open and honest performance. 
aside from the fact she's spectacular looking as well. But she's. I mean, she, the movie knows that, though. That's one of the, the brilliant things about yeah, the no, movie. It's, it's, oh, I it's, love that. It's, it's self-aware to the point where the, there's a moment where don't don't don't, don't, don't spoil it because it's a great moment. Yeah, there's a there's a great there's a great moment where it clearly where the movie actually points out that it knows exactly what it's, <laughs> what, what it's getting here. Um, yeah. And for all to talk about Ryan Gosling as Ken, who, for the record, f- I fully expect him. I'll be disappointed if he's not nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this. Because mm-hmm. um, he is wonderful. But she really manages to nail all of the emotionality and all of the, just like the feeling of being Barbie, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm sense yeah, right like the, the big thing with this one with this movie and i would argue with the lego movie as well is that they really captured the feeling of playing with those toys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she nails that and then she also just gets super memorable dialogue like there's a moment where she says someone has called her a fascist she's like i'm not a fascist i don't control the railroads or the flow of commerce <laughs> 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 and like but none of it but like none of it feels out of place you know like yeah. it it all, it all, it hangs together in a way that it maybe shouldn't even hang together, but it's all because everyone involved is so, so in on the joke and so committed to the bit that and, it, and, it just works. And I think this is going back to exactly what I said about Christopher Nolan. I think this is a Greta Gerwig show. Like she clearly gets the vision for this, and everyone. Uh, has put their trust in her. And interestingly, Ryan Gosling saying he he really fought with the idea of taking this part because he wasn't sure if he would have the right Kennedy to do it. And she really coached him to to find his truth in that and to really find the right vibe for that too. And I and uh, so again props to her. She's she directs the shit out of this film. Like absolutely directs the shit out of it. And it's got so many references to classic Hollywood as well. It opens with an absolutely pitch perfect 2001 uh, analogy, and it has a classic, <laughs> uh, classic um, stage musical moment, which I loved, 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 loved. Oh, it's and, got a great, um, a great stage, uh, like practical effects stage. Yeah, travel traveling between locations section yeah. as well. Yeah, like it's, uh, none of the jokes are overplayed. If there is some improv in there, but it's not, it's edited well. It's not overdone. Like it's just really intelligently made movie, uh, and they—I'm uh, surprised because again, it's a—it's a toy product. They could have just made they're, they're an animated Barbie movie and probably chucked it on Netflix and probably made significant money from it. But props to Mattel, whoever greenlit this, and Mattel trusted Greta Gerwig with like their life. So uh, yeah, there's a. This movie shares a lot of energy with with the likes of like uh, I think Elf is another good example of a movie that really sort of gets mm-hmm. that movie sort of gets the feeling of Christmas and what it's like to be a child at Christmas, and this movie, in the same way that this movie gets what it must be like to play with Barbie, mm-hmm. and also I think Elf is a great comparison because whenever they get when they go to the real world they have to like take the car and then the boat and then the spaceship, and then I think it's the the tandem <laughs> bike and then they're in yeah. Los Angeles. And anyone who tells you that's ridiculous, just remind them that the path from the North Pole to New York is, uh, was it the, the, I can't remember what the sea is, but it's the sea of swirly twirly gumdrops and then the candy cane forest and then the Lincoln Tunnel. So <laughs> just remember that, like, this is all fine. Mm. Um, 
And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, we should, I feel like we should, ta- I feel like part of me wants to say we should talk about Ryan Gosling more, but like he's so talked about at this moment. I really feel like highlighting how great um, Margot Robbie is. Brilliant- he, yeah. he is so good, though. and He's br- he's brilliant. And, and watching Blade Runner straight after this is like whiplash. For his his range, you go from Drive to Blade Runner to... Uh, what's that comedy movie you like with uh, Russell Crowe? The other two? Those two guys? The oh, nice the nice guys. guys. Nice, the nice guys. guys. Go to the nice guys. Go to this. Go to literally anything he's done. Crazy and, Stupid uh, Love. Crazy Stupid Love he's amazing in. He, he, can, he can do it all. He can do and La La Land as well, of course. He he's he's the real deal. He's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and the Notebook as well. He can do like searing romantic troubled lead as well. He's he's got it all. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about First Man, which is the most. I I haven't seen it. That's why. I mean, it's because society is slept on First Man in a way that I feel is upsetting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, how many stars are you going to give Barbie? This is this can't, is a f- we I, can't give more than we can't give more than five. So I'm just going to say I mean giving it five. I the the if there's an issue here, I love that the first act is amazing. The last act is incredible. The second act does it does what it needs to do with exposition, and every scene is good, and and so it kind of feels like a little drop. But this is a five star movie, and I pl- I implore you, don't like. Go and watch it in the cinema with a group of people. I went straight from Oppenheimer into the 940 showing of this where I would say 80% of the attendees were wearing pink and into it. And it's not just girls looking amazing. There were tons of boys there being absolutely confident and comfortable in their in their like sexuality and, and their maleness to wear pink. And when Margot Robbie came out, Everyone starts shouting and saying "Hello, Barbie" and everything. Like, go and see it with a crowd uh, because mm-hmm. it is a crowd movie. And also, both Oppenheimer and Barbie. If you see Oppenheimer first and Barbie, there's a lot of parallels, and they work really well together. And Barbie's an excellent palate cleanser for the trauma of Oppenheimer. But you've in in both movies, you've got a character who gains great knowledge and leads to an ex- existential crisis. So thematically, they are, they were perfectly linked. So it's a five-star <laughs> movie from me. I think mean, it's a five-star movie from... Uh, should be everyone, because it's a five-star movie for me as well. And I, uh, I look forward to... Having seen Oppenheimer twice, I look forward to seeing Barbie again and buying the Steelbook 4K Blu-ray when it comes out, <laughs> assuming oh, yes. that it gets a release. Um, <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much that. Um, Good. So should we wrap up there? Do you have anything else you want to? Yeah. Add? No, I think so. I think we're we're getting to an hour and twenty now. Like, yeah. go and see these movies. Please go to the cinema and watch these movies. Support your cinema, and support your actors and writers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we'll just wrap up. Wrap up there. Go to, go to see the movies. Here's the thing: you can still go see these movies if the writers and actors are on strike, and in fact, that will create more value for them. So maybe you should do that. Maybe now is the time to see more movies in cinemas, and to let studios know that when they're pushing things like Dune into 2024, that that is a bad choice. To just you know pay the writers and actors because they can definitely afford to do that. Um. Yeah. So, um, on that bombshell. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. One last time, if you like what you heard, please feel free to give us a five-star review 
uh, or subscribe or like or whatever it is on your podcasting platform of choice. Those things help us get into the charts uh, and um, put us in front of more earballs. And we very much appreciate that. And if you'd like to contribute yes, more directly, uh, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Simpson. The lowest tier of which is only $2 Canadian a month and gets you access to our bonus chats, uh, which range in length from 15 to 30 minutes. So they're a little more digestible. Uh, and they just talk, we just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Um, and this week that happened to be Canadian comedy uh, and Star Trek and Star Wars, which you, you'll find will be a bit of a theme. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find us on the socials. I'm going to link to our respective homepages in the show notes. Mine is stretched.ca and Simon's is temporarypen.com. You can find all of our recent work and all of our social connections there because now with the demise of Twitter, there are just two goddamn many to list. Yeah, I, I've left Twitter down. I'm done with it. Yeah. I, I, so in my case, there's a bunch. In the Simon cases, there's none. So uh, either way, check out our recent work at our websites. Um, and check out the show notes for this episode as well, because I always post Just Watched just watch powered uh streaming links for everything we cover uh which update as availability as availability shifts so for example right now they might not be for barbie but if you're listening to this in you know weeks or months or a year from now there will be streaming links to buy rent or stream uh both movies and that's a good thing and clicking on those helps us so please uh go and do that um last but certainly not least uh a second to last but certainly not least support the union Again, none of this would be possible without the writers uh, and actors that made them. There is literally no way that AI could have made either of these movies. Um, so we need our performers. And again, high tide raises all ships. So support the unions. Don't trust picket lines. Uh, and now, last but not least, we record this here in Vancouver on the unceded uh, ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish nations. Uh, thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for joining us on this awesome Friday. Thanks, bye.